This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome back to Westminster Wednesday with your host, Joe Oxley. This week's episode will be a little different as we will be discussing the Hot Topic of the Week, which will be on Princess Town and the PMQ section together. If you do enjoy listening to this podcast, please listen to my earlier episodes. If you want to contact the podcast, then it's WestminsterWednesday at gmail.com. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, uh, my name is Archie Coomber. I'm a third year math student and I am the treasurer of the Durham University Liberal Democrats. Hi, I'm Frank Kelly and I'm the first year representative at the Durham University Labour Club. Hi, I'm Jack Lewis. I'm a first year and I'm a conservative voice on this podcast. Uh, thank you very much for your introductions there. This week on Westminster Wednesday, I will be joining together the PMQ section and the Hot Topic of the Week section uh, because I thought Starmer today brought up several questions that would have related to the Hot Topic of the Week discussion. So I'm joining the, uh, these two sections together for this week. So last week, Boris Johnson decided to overrule his independent advisor and keep Pretty Patel. And Starmer's first question was sort of addressing the issues um, surrounding that, in particular, the ministerial code. He quoted saying that there must be no bullying, no harassment, no leaking, no misuse of taxpayers' money, no actual or perceived conflicts of interests. So my first question to my panel today is, how many of those promises has Boris Johnson's ministers kept? In my view, and as the independent inquiry found, uh, it does appear that there has been a substantial amount of bullying within the within the Home Office, perhaps from the very top. We have seen the emergence of conflict of interest through the allocation of government contracts to individuals and corporations close to members of this government. And But I have to say, by the Conservative Party's standards, there have been uh, very little uh, leaking or misuse of taxpayers' money, in my view. Um, I, uh, so I'd, I'd, I'd say as, as standards go, they're not doing too badly. Right, well, in terms of trying to establish how many promises Johnson's actually kept, I would say that he's kept no promises in the ministerial code. I think that, none, well, none of them are acceptable to break, but I think the abuse and the misuse of uh, public taxpayers' money is prob- probably the worst thing to uh, be breaking here, because that has an impact on... Uh, the safety of residents in this country. I mean, they're willing to spend 12 billion on a track and trace program, which doesn't actually work. has been concluded to have a marginal impact on the transmission rate of the virus in the country by SAGE. Uh, and I think the nepotism and cronyism in this government is just uh, ridiculous. And it is having an impact on the spread of the virus. So I think by prioritizing firms which have links to Tory donors, I think that the government are compromising the health of all the residents in this nation. My, my response to that initially would be that there is very little consideration for the success of the Home Office and what they've been doing to achieve, um, such as putting 20,000 new police officers onto the street. We're well on course to doing that before the end of this parliament. We're also working extremely hard to stop illegal immigration into this country. Um, And overall, these promises that were made by the uh, Conservative Party at the last election are coming together. What's incredibly important is when you remember the individual ministerial code, is that ministers 
are entitled to act within their own sort of departments they can they can behave in a way that they um, see appropriate and it's not really for the prime minister to uh, overlook the uh, responsibilities of each individual minister because that would be um, almost a kitchen cabinet that would be going on and that would be very counterproductive and almost very authoritarian and I think the way that um, Boris has dealt with um, the situation overall is by giving um, autonomy to each individual minister um, and allowing them to behave in a way that's appropriate which best serves the country. Sorry I mean I'd have to point out uh, disagreement here. I, I don't. I would not describe uh, putting twenty thousand more police officers back on the streets as a success. All that is is a what they're doing is putting something right. But in two thousand ten, a Tory government came in with policies of, of austerity, and actually they cut twenty thousand police officers from our streets. So all the Tory government are doing now is putting something right again. So I would struggle to call that an achievement. And I think, yeah, you were saying that you don't want a kitchen cabinet. Uh, you would think it were wrong of the prime minister to overlook uh, the actions of every single member of the cabinet. But at the end of the day, he is ultimately responsible because he appoints every single uh, cabinet member here. Well, in response to that, you mentioned how the 20,000 police officers that were cut in 2010. I, I think we need to really iron out the political necessity of the, of austerity from 2010 due to the economic circumstances that were left for the Tory government, um, well, for the coalition government that came in in 2010. It was it was dire straits that, that the country was in. If you remember when the Conservatives came in alongside the Liberal, Liberal Democrats, there was sort of intense an intense rush for the government to be formed because British assets were being sold by the day because the, um, the country was in such a bad way economically um, that there needs to be a clear financial plan um, to sort that out. So I think the arguments of austerity from a decade ago are almost sort of washed out old arguments because those arguments have already been had and the Conservatives have won three elections since then, which sort of demonstrate the public will that yes, the sacrifices were necessary, but at the same time, we do appreciate that we needed to rectify some of the decisions that were made. And by doing so, we've put 20,000 police officers or are in the process of putting 20,000 police officers back onto our streets and keeping the public safe. Um, I just want to come back to your point about uh, the prime minister having oversight over how ministers conduct themselves within their own department. I think you're correct that having an extremely overbearing uh, prime, uh, prime minister would would probably lead to less effective ministries but when you have a work environment which over the long term i don't think is going to be conducive to good work uh, as a result uh, like uh, as outlined in the inquiry i think it is the duty of the prime minister to step in and say this is my government you're representing i want an, an effective home office and uh, this isn't conducive to this. I would say that, for me, the reason I think that the, uh, the Prime Minister has made his decision is, if you look at Conservative Home Secretaries for uh, every single government since Blair, there's always been someone who has portrayed themselves as sort of a staunch, tough on crime, tough on innovation, sort of this authoritarian mindset, which, the, which for reason the, uh, the Conservative Party believes is popular, and perhaps it is. 
And what Boris is doing here is saying, from an, from an, from a, from an ideological point of view, Priti Patel is the best person to, uh, to lead, to lead this, this ministry, regardless of, of the actual effect it has on the workplace uh, which he's working in. I would, yeah, I would agree with Archie's point there. And I think that this isn't about Johnson's, you know, this isn't about him having a kitchen cabinet or uh, leaving response, his decision of whether he wants to leave responsibility to his cabinet members or not. The final decision of whether Priti Patel stays in this government lies with him. And he has chosen to overrule his own uh, ministerial code. He has chosen to ignore an independent advisor who's advised that she should resign. And he in fact asked the independent advisor, Alan, to water down the report. And I just think that's unacceptable uh, as a prime minister. Well, that was a very good discussion to hear for question one. But I will shall now move the, the discussion on to question uh, two now. So Starmer questioned Boris Johnson's decision to keep the same Home Secretary. And he made the point of making Johnson seem almost weak on the issue because he contrasted Priti Patel staying with the independent advisor going. And in government, there is one key convention, and that is the individual ministerial responsibility, where the minister overseeing a department should resign in cases where the minister has failed themselves or the department has overseen a failure in policy. Now, Priti Patel's independent report has been found that she did break ministerial code of conduct. So under the Individual Ministerial Responsibility Convention, should Priti Patel just resign? Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, she should resign. There's no excuse here for her not to. Uh, in fact, she hasn't. I wouldn't actually say she's apologised for what she's done. If you listen to her interview, what she says is that she's sorry. She said, I'm sorry that my behaviour has upset people and that I'm sorry for anyone that I have upset. What she's apologising for is other people's reactions to her bullying other people. She has not expressed regret about her own actions. And she has, I mean, typical, typically of this government, not taken responsibility for her own actions. What I think this expresses is yet another example of having one rule for the British public, so one rule that uh, companies in this country are expected to follow, one code of conduct, and another rule for everyone else. I think what um, Pretty Patel is a fantastic example of is um, someone who, who can work hard and rise to the top. Pretty Patel, we all, we all know Pretty Patel's uh, background, and um, I think that can't be taken away from her. Um, what I think Nisa uh, be principally considered is how hard she's worked since she's been at the Home Office and the successes that she's had. And I'm sure that uh, neither of my colleagues here would disagree that Priti Patel has been nothing short of a marvellous Home Secretary in what she's achieved. Um, as I've mentioned, the police, we've mentioned uh, combating illegal immigration, and we've also mentioned about being tough on crime, which is, as Archie said, an incredibly popular policy I think widely across the country um, and she she resembles um, what being tough on crime is all about 
Do I think that she should resign? Absolutely not. And that's not just from a partisan point of view. I think it would be a great loss for the country if Priti Patel were to resign because she's a key politician uh, that represents uh, what hard work uh, can get you in Britain. And overall, I think that um, her resigning would be a tragedy, both for my government and for the country overall. I think in terms of preserving the integrity of the ministerial code and, you know, in terms of setting precedents, it would be the principled thing to do for Priti Patel to resign. I think if we were to see a situation like this repeated, maybe in a, in a government in the future, in a, in a different ministry, you would expect that regardless of how effective or how popular the minister is, their personal principles on what it means to be a minister who serves in government will surpass all of those other merits. And they will, set, they will, they will raise their hands up and say, there's been an independent inquiry into my behaviour and it's shown that my behaviour has been wrong and it's been detrimental to my workplace and therefore I should resign. So Jack, Starmer pointed out today that in previous governments, and this has included Conservative and Labour governments, if a minister was found to have broken the ministerial code, they would have resigned. What do you respond back to that question? I'd say there are probably numerous examples in the previous Labour government of that not being the case. Overall, I'd say um, Alan Johnson in the Home Office was seen to have acted incompetently on an individual scale and did not resign. He, he lasted up until the 2010 general election. That's just to name one example. There's been, there's been scandals, I think, in, in this uh, in previous Conservative governments, in the previous Labour governments. I don't particularly think that this constitutes anything too outrageous. I think ultimately we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And I think this over-glorification of what's gone on is almost a bit um, the thick of it-esque, if you like. It's, I'm not sure anybody's thinking, and the Home Office like Malcolm Tucker, I don't think that's um, ever in question. Um, but what I, what I would say is, um, if there was an issue, I'm sure the independent inquiry would have been able to um, identify specific examples of where she fell foul, not just uh, identifying that bullying did exist within the Home Office, because to be quite frank, I'm sure that bullying exists in most workplaces and where it does, I, I don't know. I, I'm obviously, of course, against bullying, but um, at the same time, I think we need to look at the holistic issue and think that within the sort of specified, specifying it within Pretty Patel's area of work at such a time as now when she's pu pushing through so many sort of um, flagship policies for the government is almost convenient for political opponents to attack her and demand her resignation. I don't think that's in the public interest. I don't think that's in the national interest. I don't think that's in this government's interest. So I'd say she shouldn't resign and she should stay put. I, I would disagree. I mean, I have been... <clears throat> specific examples stated and ex-civil servants who have come out and said exactly what Priti Patel has been doing to bully other staff. She's shouted and sworn in the face of our colleagues. I don't think that's acceptable in any way whatsoever. And I mean, you started off defending Patel by saying, look how hard she's worked. She's got these flagship policies. It doesn't matter how, well, I don't think she's competent, but it doesn't matter how competent you believe she is everyone is subject to the same ministerial code. It doesn't matter what you're doing as a politician. And, you know, you said she's tough on immigration and she's tough on crime. I thought the leaks of the Home Office's plan to send immigrants, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles away to volcanic islands was just horrific. I mean, it was inhumane. 
And then you mentioned as well that she should stay because she's tough on crime. But she represents a government who is willing and blatantly uh, able to violate international law to break a deal which the government actually signed itself. She just has no shame here. And I think, you know, again, she's not tough on crime. I don't think she's competent whatsoever. She, she claimed credit earlier this year for falling burglary rates, crime rates during a national lockdown. I just don't think that makes any sense. But the principal reason as to why she has to go is because she has been found guilty of bullying her colleagues. So she has to resign. Jack, coming back to your point where you said that if there were like specific nameable incident, um, incidents, they would have been named in the report. I think like the, the key thing about an independent inquiry is it has to maintain a, especially on a subject such as this, where you are going to have someone who is potentially going to abuse their position of power. You have to maintain anonymity for the people who are complaining to the inquiry about the sort of things which are going on. That's just, I believe that's, uh, that's more or less common sense. My, my sort of overall response is, so we mentioned that, um, well, I think Starmer mentioned that uh, Boris Johnson wrote the foreword to the Ministerial Code um, in 2019. So uh, one thing to establish, do, what, what, what's the ideal situation here? Do you think that Priti Patel should resign or Boris Johnson should sack her? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite um, understanding where, I mean, why do you think that replacing Preeti Patel at the Home Office would be um, somehow politically advantageous? Um, if anything, uh, amidst the coronavirus pandemic, it would only lead to um, more sort of governmental backlog, which would be incredibly counterproductive and perhaps even dangerous at such a time when we need police enforcement of coronavirus regulations. This could it could end it could end extremely badly, and um, and not not only to to mention the uh, issues of replacing somebody on the basis that they may not even need to be replaced because I, I will absolutely defend this to the death. You know, Priti Patel has been doing a fantastic job at the Home Office. I think coming on to your point as to why would it be politically advantageous for someone uh, for someone such as Priti Patel with such sustained accusations level against her in ministry, why would it be advantageous for her to be uh, to, 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 uh, to resign or to be replaced? And the answer is... If Boris Johnson wants to have a long-term government, that is a government which is effective over not only this election cycle, but the next one as well, and I believe that's probably what he wants, he wants to have a workable sort of work environment within the Home Office for whatever talent uh, in the junior ministers in the civil service that are coming into the Home Office. So what part of, part of what I think this, this might demonstrate is Boris Johnson, perhaps either he isn't thinking far ahead or he is simply resigned to the fact that this is not going to be a long term government. I mean, I think, I mean, a talk here about what's politically advantageous isn't the right angle to look at this. This isn't about party politics and this isn't about party factions. This is about doing the right thing and following basic uh, codes of conduct which everyone working in this nation is expected to follow she has been found guilty of bullying her colleagues and therefore she should resign this was an independent advisor this isn't political so what i do expect and what i think many many people around the country expect is that Priti patel follow the rules that the rest of us follow and she should resign if not she should be fired really good debate there guys that was uh, really really good so now I'll quickly move on to the third question of the discussion. Now, Boris Johnson is the arbiter of the ministerial code, and 
In doing so, he did rule out the independent advisors' advice that uh, Prince Carl did break the ministerial code of conduct. However, in doing so, I would ask two questions. What does this say about Boris Johnson's judgment? And would there have been a different outcome if this was an ordinary workplace? I think overall, to say that there'd be a different outcome if this was an ordinary workplace, I completely disagree because ultimately we we don't know the exact details, the, the nuances towards what happened within the Home Office. I think we've tried to have that discussion, but we've not actually seeped out those very details for the listeners. But what I would say is if severe wrongdoing was done and if what Pretty Patel has supposedly done was so damaging that it would ruin the reputation of the government, then I'm under sort of no illusions that Boris Johnson would have given Pretty Patel her marching orders. But the fact is, it's clear that Boris Johnson has almost um, conducted a cost-benefit analysis, realised that these accusations against Preeti Patel on the one hand towards the competence and success uh, and the smooth runningness of her department on the other hand, he's decided to back Preeti Patel and so have the uh, vast majority of Conservative MPs. In an ordinary workplace, if bullying happens, there tends to be, or one would like to think that there would be a zero tolerance policy on that sort of thing. And we have an independent inquiry which, uh, which uh, in, in another workplace, if an independent inquiry came in and found that there was wrongdoing, that would be fairly damning. What I would say is, though, it is clear that Boris Johnson's government is not any ordinary, any, any ordinary workplace. We've had a series of scandals within this government, uh, the uh, Dominic Cummings scandal. We've had the failure to roll out testing and test and trace properly in, in lines with the uh, government's own targets. And so I think that what Boris Johnson is thinking is the British public have become so desensitised to scandal from this government that another one won't really do much harm to either his or uh, the Conservative Party's popularity in general. And like that's, I think like that's probably an effective uh, and sort of correct analysis that uh, we've been so bombarded by all these unbelievable happenings from Whitehall that uh, many people choose to switch off and don't care anymore. It, it also speaks to like, what really are the principles of this government if they do not follow uh, the, their own ministerial code, which was, as we say, was authored and sort of uh, put in place by Boris Johnson's government. Like, what, what, what does it say that this government cannot even stick to their own principles on how they run their own shop? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with what you're saying there especially what you mentioned when you said that her actions definitely, I mean, it amount to bullying and that just wouldn't be accepted in any other workplace whatsoever. And what this might do in ignoring a scandal is kind of desensitise the British public to all these scandals, because this is what we've had in this government, is just scandal after scandal. I mean, Jane, she can't be fired because we don't know the exact details of what happened, but we do know what happened. She's been accused and found guilty of shouting and swearing at her colleagues. It's there in black and white in a report. You know, if you read it, you'll see Alex Allen concluded that she did threshold to be uh, proved guilty of bullying the office. And so to move on to the question uh, about what this says about Boris Johnson's judgment, I think this is very revealing. It actually say this is based on a previous record of the government. This isn't surprising in any way whatsoever. Uh, the British it's the British public who have had to pay the human cost of his carelessness throughout the pandemic. 
uh, from him and his government. So we shouldn't be surprised that he has no respect for his own ministerial code. In um, October 2019, he demonstrated that he has little respect for the British law and, in fact, democracy when he tried to unlawfully prorogue Parliament at the height of the Brexit crisis. And don't forget, recently, he's blatantly tried to break international law by breaking apart a deal which he signed himself and sold to the British public as general election. So if he's unwilling to abide to international law, and British law, of course, he's not going to be bothered to even, uh, you know, listen to what his own ministerial code says. Well, what I find incredibly interesting about this notion of um, righteousness um, from the, the Labour Party's point of view about why Pretty should uh, resign or why um, Boris Johnson should immediately step in and sack her um, is when former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has basically been blatantly outed for allowing anti-Semitism to be rife within the Labour Party and he has his uh, membership suspended for a total of 10 days before he's readmitted to the party purely on the purposes that there was a mass exodus in Labour membership and so it was politically Jeremy Corbyn to be readmitted to the party to allow him uh, and the membership to stay together and create a united front on a purely political basis. So what we're, what we're talking about on the morals of resignations and sackings, I think maybe we could um, explore the issue of A, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, and B, Keir Starmer in the Labour's NEC response to that. I think that's an equally interesting debate to have. I don't agree with that. He's been allowed back as a member, but he has not had the whip restored, which means he doesn't represent the Labour Party in Parliament. And it's interesting that you compare and contrast the Labour and Tories here, because it's very clear that Labour have correctly responded to the EHRC report. It was a day of shame for the Labour Party. You know, we all regret what's happened in the Labour Party over the last few years, and we never want anything to happen like this ever again. And Labour immediately committed to implementing every single piece of advice uh, that was in that report about what needs to change with the disciplinary procedures and what needs to change with the complaint procedures. Every single member of the cabinet and the Labour Party took responsibility. It was a collective sense of shame. And it was a collective responsibility and a recognition of what we need to get right, what we desperately need to get right. Now, compare and contrast that with the Tories. Uh, they, don't even, they don't even care about the ministerial code. They've been given the conclusion by an independent advisor and they've ignored it. Labour were given conclusions by an independent advisor and they've immediately chosen to follow them and implement them as soon as they possibly can. Well, um, again, very good debate with that question there. I will now move on to question four. And it's, I want to say, a long-term implication of what this means for Boris Johnson's government. And it hasn't been easy in his time in office so far. He's had to deal with uh, the coronavirus, which has uh, thrown many difficulties at this government. However, I want to know your opinions. What are the long-term implications for Boris Johnson's government after his decision to keep Priti Patel in office? Um, going back to what I was saying about setting a precedent, I think this sort of thing slipping through uh, uh, Boris's with, um, with the Prime Minister's stamp of approval on and Conservative MPs waving it through, it gives, it gives the Prime Minister and his cabinet sort of almost an unparalleled mandate to uh, 
keep plodding on with the sort of things that have been going on in cabinet. And I don't necessarily know what the Prime Minister's endgame with, with this is. I suppose he'd like to try and keep his same cabinet around until the next general election. But as I said a couple of questions ago, I believe sticking out and keeping to, uh, by what have been uh, described as uh, toxic and bullying workplaces in Whitehall is not going to be conducive to an, to an effective or good government. Uh, and therefore, I, I question Boris Johnson's judgment about what is good in the long term in terms of running the country. And we could, uh, let's uh, talk about like the policy implications of uh, this path. We're going to see the Home Office, even during a pandemic, stick to these sort of issues which are far away from the current crisis we're looking at. Issues of accepting refugees, which um, in their callousness has a human cost, but also has absolutely nothing to do with preventing the spread of COVID-19 in this country. And it kind of just shows the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, what I think is a core tenant of how Boris Johnson runs his government, where there is a very glaring issue at hand and the government goes and whistles and says, look over there, here's something else that we can deal with. Don't pay attention to this issue. Yeah, no, I agree with what Archie was saying. I think that what the signal is, is it's just gonna be more of the same. It's going to be more the same carelessness. Uh, I mean, it's just going to be unhindered uh, in what he's doing. I think, you know, Jack was saying, you, you know, I think you were missing the point greatly. You kept talking about how good she is. I mean, you, I know you agree with her immigration policies. I don't, but this isn't a matter of what she's doing or how good she is. This is a matter of breaking the ministerial code and that's it. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. Everyone everyone in a nation is subject to a code of conduct when they're in a work of office. Now, I think in terms of the long-term implications for Johnson's government, uh, like I said, I think he's going to carry on uh, as he is. Uh, you know, the resignation of Kane and Cummings was designed especially to appear as a fresh start for Johnson's premiership, but I think we all knew it wouldn't. Uh, the Cummings' departure from Downing Street was highly choreographed, you know, you saw him walking out the front door of Downing Street with a big box in his hand. It was meant to symbolize a fresh start. But with instead, as we've expected, within a week, uh, Johnson's already messed things up. He's created another problem where there is none. He described devolution in Scotland as a disaster. And now he's refused to condemn and fire Priti Patel. This is no new start. And this is no new start because Boris Johnson is central to the failings of this government. It's no one else, it's not his cabinet ministers. I think they're incompetent, but it is Johnson here who's central to the issues of government, which is why I think in the long term, we're just gonna have more of the same. I think ultimately um, the future of this conservative government uh, will rest on how they uh, deal with the economic situation uh, as set out by Rishi Sunak today, who I'm sure as much as there are many uh, cabinet figures that are sort of subject to a great deal of criticism. I'd say that Rishi Sunak is a figure who the majority of people in the country can coalesce around as a, a safe pair of hands for the great British economy. Um, what I would say is 
how the implications of Pretty Patel remaining in office after um, this interview, um, not sorry, this is not this interview, uh, after this decision uh, made by um, the report today, the, the impact of that is, I think, going to have quite uh, a positive um, overall view for the government because what it will do is it will enable the government to move move forward with their policy program, uh, move forward with um, their overall sort of agenda that they've got for the country for the next four years. And I think once we've sort of achieved uh, like past this hurdle um, of uh, this investigation, whether Priti Patel does resign or not, we've had instances where ministers one week have been told that they'd um, they had the full backing of the prime minister and the next week they've been out the door. I can't say that that'll be any different this time or not, because it depends on the overall sort of um, media storm that's created as to whether uh, she'll stay or go. Um, I personally hope she stays, um, but that's, that's by the by, I think. But overall, I think that the Conservative government are sort of the duly elected government from the election just under a year ago. I think the polls still suggest that the Conservative Party um, would finish with the most seats if there was an election tomorrow. So I think um, overall Boris Johnson is doing more right than wrong. Yeah, his policies and his reaction to the coronavirus pandemic have been more positive than negative. And overall, um, I think the future for the Conservative Party is quite a bright one. Well, I mean, I would also say in response to you saying that, you know, if you think there was an election tomorrow, the Tories would win. You know, I would think that the current situation we're in, uh, according to the polls, would reflect the fact that I think Labour would have handled this crisis much, much better. This is why Starmer has continuously, for quite a while now, led Johnson in polls of the question of who would be the best prime minister. We have the worst economic recession in the G7. We have the highest COVID death toll in Europe. I think that for the long-term implications for the Conservative Party, unless they have some kind of radical overhaul of everything right now is going to be very damaging. I think, you know, also voting intention will reflect uh, the economics of what's going on right now. I think Sunak, uh, although he's praised by many, I know he's very popular in the Tory party. He's caused a lot of uncertainty, I think, which has led to uh, job redundancies, especially in the last quarter. So when he announces winter economic plan in September, that was subsequently followed by four changes, especially to the furlough scheme in a period of about six weeks. This isn't what businesses need right now. And that was then followed by the announcement recently that there's going to be a freeze on public sector pay. Yes, we need to reduce our debt, but this is not the right thing to do at the moment. This is just going to stifle our economic recovery by saying to the people who have got us through this pandemic, that they're not going to have their wages raised and instead they're going to save money and our economy will not bounce back in a way it needs to because they won't be spending money. Um, my response to that would actually be uh, one of partial agreement. Uh, notwithstanding, though, that over a million people within the public sector will be facing a 2.2% pay rise uh, in 2021. I do agree, though, that throughout the pandemic, the people who have worked incredibly hard to get the country through, they do deserve a pay rise. And I will quite happily concede that that is not a, an economic policy decision uh, that the government um, should take. I'll, I'll quite happily say that they everybody within the public sector who has helped the country through the coronavirus pandemic and continually helping the country through the pandemic does deserve a pay rise. However, I do think that the work on having people 
uh, on low paid uh, public sector work receiving a, a minimum of a £250 boost um, from 2021 onwards is uh, a fantastic policy that addresses inequity in society and also um, is part of the levelling up programme, the £4 billion infrastructure bank, which will help places all over the country, especially in the north where I'm from. Um, it's a fantastic policy. And I think overall that the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak um, came forward with a uh, fantastic spending review today for the next five years of the country, especially in the damaging economic circumstances. Well, that was a fantastic uh, debate there, guys. I will now move on to my um, fifth question and I'll shift it back uh, to PMQs today. So Starmer continued his assessment throughout the rest of PMQs on the ministerial code of conduct. He went through all the other um, points. Uh, however, I want to discuss one element of that, and that is the communication. We discussed PPE contracts already on this podcast. So let's just talk about the communication during the crisis. Obviously, it's been a tough crisis to deal with. Any government, and in fact, all governments have struggled to a certain degree in this crisis. However, I want your quick assessment of how you think the government have communicated during the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I think it's been absolutely awful. Uh, their communication strategy has been, it's been incoherent and it's been confusing. Uh, and it's been primarily based on manipulating public opinion. It's been their main priority so that uh, members of the government I mean, namely Boris Johnson can avoid the responsibility which he needs to take. I think there's an example I have, which I mean, symbolic of all of this, which was on the 12th of May, the government removed its international comparison chart of COVID deaths. I mean, it was no coincidence that the UK a couple of days earlier had just overtaken Italy with the highest death toll in Europe. This is about public image. It's about manipulating public opinion. There's a reason why his government spends millions on polling data to find out what the public think of lifting and reintroducing lockdown measures. Uh, for example, they have a £705,000 polling contract uh, with cancer. So instead of leading public opinion, as any prime minister is obliged to do really, and taking decisive action on the virus, here we have U-turn after U-turn, we have fiasco after fiasco, and this is becoming the normal now of this government. The PM is led by the polls, and I think he's indecisive. I think that um, the Conservative Party uh, response to the coronavirus from March, given that the circumstances were, of course, unprecedented, have been, on, on the whole, a positive response. We've listened to the science, um, and we've acted upon that. And I th think, uh, from a Labour Party point of view, I think the, the stripe of government would be uh, irrelevant as to uh, the position we'd be in either way. What I would say is there is a reason why uh, Sakir is uh, nicknamed uh, Captain Hindsight, and it's due to the fact that he is the one who's continually U-turned, U-turned um, and U-turned. He's been against face masks, then he was for them. He was against um, further action uh, on a tiered system, and then he was for it. So I think altogether, the the notion that the Labour Party would have dealt with the coronavirus pandemic in any better way is uh, one that would be uh, a futile debate to have. I think it would it'd be meaningless because it's all circumstantial. 
what what I would say is perhaps the Labour Party would have spent even more money than the Conservative Party have in recent months. But overall, I think that the the response it hasn't it hasn't been ideal. But I don't think that any stripe of government would have done uh, a particularly brilliant job. Uh, no, I don't think that's right. Oh, <laughs> Captain Hindsight. I mean, that's just a typical example of Johnson shifting blame away from himself onto someone else. Uh, I mean, a perfect example of the Labour, a reason why the Labour Party would have dealt uh, much better than the Tories with this crisis is the example of the circuit breaker. So Sage advised that England, uh, well, the UK needed a circuit breaker to lower cases of the virus, which in turn would actually help the economy, because in the long run, it would delay uh, the requirement for a national lockdown. Labour called for a circuit breaker. And a whole month later, an entire month later, with cases rising, deaths rise to 500 a day, 600 a day. Finally, Johnson listened to the Labour Party and decided to impose a national lockdown. But had we listened to Labour, we would have ended up with a two or three week circuit breaker instead of a month long national lockdown. We would have been looking at lower number of cases and a lower number of deaths. And our economy would have been far better off than it is now. Uh, it's Johnson and his government who are responsible for these U-turns. In fact, you know, quite clearly here, it's Starmer who can predict the course of the virus much more. And it's him who's listening uh, to Sage and science on this. Uh, I mean, a perfect example as well of, I mean, Johnson called, he can call Starmer Captain Hindsight all he likes. But the free school meal example is a perfect instance in which the Tories, I mean, I, I don't know how they didn't understand that leaving two, almost two million children starving over Christmas was not an option. It would have cost 20 million, but they're willing to spend 29 million on a festival celebrating Brexit. I mean, it, I, I just don't think that makes sense. So the uh, questions about the uh, government communications during the pandemic, uh, I think the good parts of government communication during the pandemic have been when they've allowed their senior science advisors, such as Chris Whitty, to take centre stage and allow the science to speak to, uh, to speak to the public. And I think that's a, it's, it's a good thing to have uh, uh, scientific or, or authorities speaking to the public. I think it's, I think that's a really good idea. What uh, the, the Difficult part is when the government then tries to come up with uh, policies to, in order to respond to the science in combination with uh, what I think Frank was talking about earlier, which is an obsession with public opinion. And while I do think it's, mo it's usually it's important for a government to do what is popular in a public health crisis, they need to uh, buckle down and say a month, a month before the circuit break can start, when the government actually got uh, scientific advisors to give a presentation on the fact that there was a re-emergence of exponential growth, i.e. an R rate greater than one in many areas of the country, that was then the time to announce a circuit breaker lockdown and to say, this is getting out of hand. This is what we need to do in order to preserve life and to, and, and to, and to preserve our economy. I also would like to point out how the government has at points changed its sort of, so changed its sort of its, uh, its trifecta sort of message. So it was originally uh, uh, stay, stay home, uh, stay, stay, uh, protect the NHS or something like that. I can't quite remember. And then it was uh, 
something about keeping your distance, uh, control the virus, safe. No, no. So it was stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. And then this is because I think as a key result of Dominic Cummings being a key figure within the government, he, he is, of course, a master of data science when it comes to when it comes to uh, uh, mobilizing public opinion. And he understands that short, concise um, messages are very, very good at give, giving the message across. But when these uh, the slogans become jumbled and they and they change, and the guidance can change from week to week in different parts of the country, and everything becomes a muddled and confusing, that's where you have a breakdown in public in communications with the public, which is. And communications with the public are absolutely essential during a public health crisis. You cannot, uh, you cannot hope, hope, hope to overcome it without effective communications. What I'd like to see is, I think, at, at the beginning of the crisis, when they had daily briefings involving scientific advisors alongside government figures, that was that was very positive because it, it allowed and and, and we're that allowed the government and uh, to to lay out the science and say this is this is what this is what we're doing about it. It's noticeable, but that, that that sort of thing has very much dried up. And as a result, I think the decisions the government has been made has, has made over the past few weeks have been, uh, uh, in some cases, um, too, uh, too 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 little, too late, and in others, just woefully in, inadequate in general. I think to have to call for a national circuit breaker at the point that the Labour Party did was slightly premature. Um, in that there were parts of the country, large regions in the country, that were suffering as few as 24 cases per 100,000. Now, to have such a severe restrictions upon liberties, um, such as a, a lockdown um, for a fortnight or however long the Labour Party proposed for it to last, um, to have that uh, imposed on you um, when you live in an area um, when this is per 100,000, an incredibly low uh, chance of transmission would be, um, I think, almost unnecessary. And I think what we have seen, too, is the tiered system working. Of course, it takes about two to three weeks to get an accurate measurement for for the delay of transmission of the virus to the figures being presented to the public. And we're seeing a decrease in areas that are placed into tier three restrictions now, um, from when tier three was imposed on such areas, such as Greater Manchester, uh, Leicester and Rochdale. Uh, th those are three particular areas where cases have come rapidly shooting down due to the tier three restrictions imposed. Um, a further point that Frank mentioned earlier was that of which I thought to be uh, rather exasperating because it's, um, it's, it's clear politics that's being played by the Labour Party. Um, the vote on free school meals was on an opposition day, which is effectively where any vote on an opposition day um, is controlled. The agenda is controlled by the by, by Her Majesty's most loyal opposition, which is currently the Labour Party. Um, and so all votes on an opposition day are indicative, um, which means they don't mean anything. They're purely symbolic. And so the Labour Party proposed a motion that free school meals should be kept in a voucher form, um, for an extended period of time that wasn't specified and it was uh, worded in such a way that um, it was effectively it was unfeasible for the government to sign up um, the motion to be to be passed because it was effectively providing 20 pounds uh, worth of um, of funding to each individual uh, family 
um, without the constraints that actually being for free school meals, uh, it wouldn't be vouchers, it would be uh, just a, a monetary handover, when actually the free school meals uh, take place in a voucher form. And so that change was purely, it was unfeasible. The Labour Party knew that that motion was unfeasible and they themselves would not have backed it if they believed that there was any chance of that motion being passed. So they they themselves know that the free school meals issue was purely them playing politics because it would make good reading in headlines for the Conservative Party to appear, uh, to appear of lacking compassion or uh, whatever the Labour Party's intention was there, when in actual fact, the Conservative Party continue to provide free school meals for children, uh, both inside uh, school term time and out during the coronavirus. Um, I'd uh, like to go back to your point, Jack, about, about restricting liberties. And yes, I think that it's incredibly important to take uh, individual liberties into uh, into account when we're when we're thinking about introducing circuit breaker lockdowns. But because of the nature of how disease spreads, if you imp- implement a, cert- a circuit breaker earlier on, you're going to have to restrict people's freedoms for a far lower time than uh, than this month. And in this way, like I believe that decisive action has to be made for the in the name of freedom and i know that's that 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 sounds almost laughable but the fact that frank was making about having a what what do you term a, a premature circuit breaker lockdown would have been uh, better for the uh, liberties of the british public that's that's just my uh, two cents on that all right no yeah John, i have to say i completely disagree with you on that point about free school meals i think you've completely missed a point uh, I was pretty shocked to hear you say that the Labour Party were playing politics. I mean, we're talking about free school meals for two million children, almost half a million of which are living in child poverty, which has increased, by the way, since 2010. Uh, And like what Boris Johnson likes to claim in PMQs. Uh, Yeah, yeah, of course, the motion was held in opposition day because they're the opposition. This isn't symbolic and it isn't to do with party politics. This is about feeding children and keeping them from starving. And then you said it was unfeasible to pass a motion. Of course it was feasible. They did a U-turn two weeks later and then they passed it. Uh, this, this is a government who have, they have 29 million pounds to celebrate Brexit with a festival, but they don't have the 20 million pounds needed to uh, feed starving children. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And the suggestion that this is party politics, I mean, it's just completely mista- mistaken. And then to move on to your earlier point, you were talking about how Labour's call for a circuit was premature. Labour's call for a circuit breaker actually came after Sage had advised one. You tried to claim that the Conservatives were following scientific advice, but here it is in black and white, Labour Party following the scientific advice and calling for a circuit breaker. This wasn't premature in any way whatsoever. And besides, you can listen to the PMQs the week before Boris Johnson implemented a second national lockdown. There he is standing there saying that Labour want to wreck the economy. And then a week later, he does another U-turn. So yeah, this is a clear example of Labour actually having a sensible foresight and listening to the science. I think, again, on the issue of free school meals, um, I want to make this absolutely abundantly clear. Free school meals are still being provided for those two million children who are eligible for them. That has not changed. The issue on the free school meals has not changed. It was the mere notion of how the Labour Party wanted the the transition of money for free school meals to be provided. And that was what was voted on on 
the opposition day. That was what was rejected. It was clear party politics, and that's plain and simple. And when it comes to the um, issue of the uh, call-in for the premature circuit breaker from the Labour Party, um, it was premature because um, as a large swathes of the country where implementing such uh, a policy would have been, uh, frankly, almost disastrous because people wouldn't have uh, thought it was fair that when there's such low levels of cases in their area and for hundreds of miles, well, not hundreds of miles, but tens of miles around them, it's almost it wouldn't be it wouldn't be practical for them because what you've got to remember is that circuit breaker lockdowns if they could be avoided which at the time the conservative party thought that it could have been avoided um and i think that was that was a genuine belief at the time i think if the tiered system had have worked better um which is why we're reverting to the tiered system after this lockdown because it has demonstrated that it does work because cases have been limited where they were higher and it does provide certain freedoms in areas where um, cases are lower the tiered system does work because a regional whack-a-mole approach is a successful one it's worked so far but overall um, calling for a, 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 an entire circuit breaker lockdown uh, on a national scale would quite frankly have been incredibly politically unpopular um, and by politically politically unpopular it's very easy for the Labour Party in opposition to um, sit on a high horse of righteousness about the issues um, when if they were so concerned about the polls as the governing party they would definitely not be making the hard choices um, and two would be making politically advantageous decisions for themselves. Sorry but this has nothing to do with party politics and free school meals has absolutely nothing to do with sitting on a high horse of righteousness. Funnily enough what it has to do is with feeding starving children. And know that Tories don't regularly supply. Yes, in term time, they might supply free school meals. But this was about extending it throughout the year in the pandemic when it was needed the most. And in fact, you speak of party politics. It was a Tory party who tried to cover up and initially defend their policy of denying children free school meals. You can listen to interviews from Matt Hancock. Honestly, go back to it. He, he sits there in an interview saying that, uh, telling the interviewer they're wrong. Uh, by pointing out that the Tory party have supplied £60 million towards free school meals. And that's right, but it's completely misleading. That £60 million in that interview had already been spent. It had been spent on free school meals from April to October, which is exactly why there was a free school meal vote in the first place, because the time period and the money had run out and it desperately needed an extension. And the Tory party denied that. And I think I disagree completely as well with you saying that um, uh, it was going to be disastrous for when the Labour Party uh, wanted to have the national lockdown. Well, it's not because the, John, Boris Johnson was still calling a national lockdown disastrous for our, our economy one week before he actually implemented it. It just doesn't make sense. And um, I think their COVID strategy is just all over the place. I mean, you spoke of the whack-a-mole strategy as if, you know, we expect to come out of the national lockdown now and carry on with our whack-a-mole strategy and cases are going to get lower. Well, we've already tried that strategy. It hasn't worked. It needs to change, but Johnson isn't going to change it. I think Starmer rightly pointed out about a month ago in PM's regional approach to controlling the virus was not working. In the 19 of the 20 English cities which had uh, coronavirus restrictions for two months or longer in all but one of those constituencies every single constituency had had their infection rate of the virus more than double 
the government does not have control of the virus. And I don't think there's any point in pretending they do. Well, again, that was a fantastic debate. Maybe a little bit off the question I asked about government communication, but in the, in the round, it was a, a passionate debate from uh, all um, parties involved. So my final question is, um, if you could sit down to both Johnson and Starmer, how would you say they could do better uh, in PMQs and or in government or opposition? Um, so to start off, what I'd say to uh, Boris is in government, um, he probably needs to um, be more considerate of all-encompassing policy, thinking about a long-term strategy mm. and thinking about the economy um, within his COVID policy. Um, so when it comes to um, national lockdowns, uh, it's about how he's going to respond to that and how he's going to uh, make the uh, UK economy competitive on a global scale. Um, in terms of his performance at PMQs, um, I would say overall that he um, does largely answer the questions and on the occasions where he doesn't, which I'm sure all politicians are guilty of, maybe cut that out and start answering the questions. For Keir Starmer, I would, I would um, especially in the first lockdown, I would commend Keir Starmer um, for his cooperation with the government. But I think um, since the first lockdown, there has been more party politics in a time where there needs to be, um, I think, increased unity. Um, so when it comes to Keir Starmer, I think he needs to um, have a clear approach, a clear parallel approach to the government, almost start acting like an alternative government and less of a, somebody who just sort of criticises the government after things have, after decisions have been made, as opposed to actually offering clear alternatives. So, but I think overall, Keir is quite new to his job and Boris has got an incredibly uh, difficult job dealing with uh, unprecedented circumstances. So um, overall, what I say to both of them is just sort of carry on and try and get the country back up and running again as soon as possible. So uh, in terms of advice uh, in Prime Minister's questions, uh, to the Prime Minister, I'd say you got a bit of a telling off from the Speaker today for asking questions uh, directly back to the Leader of the Opposition. Uh, I don't think I think there are like there are there are times when yes, the prime minister and the leader of the opposition should have conversations because they are colleagues after all. But prime minister's questions isn't one of them. That's the time before the prime minister answers questions on behalf of his government. To uh, to, to the leader of the opposition, I'd say go for the kill more often. One thing that I I didn't uh, particularly I I don't particularly like Jeremy Corbyn, but one of the things I thought that he did quite well in, uh, occasionally during Prime Minister's questions is he very much hammered the point home. And in the past, it seems like Keir Starmer had tried to allow Boris Johnson to tie himself in knots, but I think Boris is getting, he's getting better at his job and he's not tying himself in knots so much in, the, uh, in answering uh, questions in PMQs. He might need to change up his tactics if he's going to sort of uh, effectively um, provide good criticism to, to the government. In terms of their actual jobs, to uh, what I, I'd say to Boris, you need to be listening to the, uh, to, to Sage more, you need, to, uh, you need to be listening to portions of the civil service and, uh, and public sector workers more. Uh, and like in, in, in terms of the 
uh, there are like certain projects that your government is pursuing, which on which are counterproductive to uh, uh, how uh, to well, not, not counterproductive, but they're diverting resources away from fighting the coronavirus and uh, and, and protecting the lives and and, uh, and liberties of the British people. And to uh, Keir Starmer, I'd say there was a period when uh, Keir Starmer was very much sort of uh, I I wouldn't normally use this phrase, but licking the Tory boots in terms of uh, going quite uh, sort of right wing and of of authoritarian on a quite on, on a few. Uh, law and order issues and I'd say um, I, I would hate to see the Labour Party uh, re return to its slightly authoritarian Blairite past uh, overly statist which I, I wouldn't like to see so uh, perhaps try and forge a more in terms of social policy uh, and, uh, and and, and uh, policy of civil liberties try and forge a path which is distinct from the, from the Conservative Party. Well I think what I'd say to Starmer is, I mean, first of all, I think he, he's doing an amazing job. Uh, I think he, you know, he, he calls Johnson out on, you know, his lies and uh, he gets him into all kinds of messes. Uh, I think he has charisma, but I think it's something he could develop a bit more. Uh, what I like about him is that he never takes, he doesn't take the bait from Johnson. So quite often what happens is that Starmer will criticise Serco Track and Trace or the outsource privatised track and failing track and trace system. And Johnson will come back with, you know, the usual bluster saying, you're attacking our frontline workers and you're attacking the NHS, which is simply not true. He's trying to actually make their lives easier and improve the government's response. Uh, but, John, you know, Starmer never replies that. He moves on to the next question and he doesn't take the bait. <clears throat> so I think... With Johnson, it's quite difficult to know where to start. <laughs> like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I think he has broken every ministerial code there is. Uh, I think the main thing I would want him to address is the lying in PMQs. It happens most weeks and it's very frustrating. Uh, it's misleading. And in terms of communications with the public, uh, it's not what we need at all. So, for example, I spotted in the... If you notice his reply to the sixth question today, he said that any conflict of interest will be evident in the publication of all contracts. I mean, that's, that's a blatant lie as well. It happens most weeks in PMQs. If they haven't published all the contract, that's what Starmer has been pressing him on. There are, the government are hiding 4 billion worth of COVID contracts past the 30 day legal requirement to publish. So of course, you know, this is to hide the nepotism and the cronyism of Johnson's government. What you need to do, that's what I would say to him. Please stop lying in PMQs. Well, thank you very much, guys, for your really interesting debate, uh, even though maybe at times I wasn't quite sticking to the question, but it was great hearing from all of you guys from your side of the argument. So thank you very much to my panel, Archie, Frank and Jack. If you enjoyed the podcast, then um, listen back to previous episodes of this podcast. If not, uh, I hope you listen in next week. Goodbye. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.